Welcome to GuideHouse on Financial Services, offering insights for financial services leaders and striving for success in an evolving industry. Today's episode is entitled Insurance Accounting and COVID-19's Impact. We are joined by Mike Perinello, Director at GuideHouse, Dave Valeri, Associate Director at GuideHouse, and Rick Smith, Head of Insurance Solutions at Clearwater Analytics, a global SaaS solution for automated investment data aggregation, reconciliation, accounting, and reporting. Mike Perinello leads large and impactful change initiatives for his clients and has extensive experience working with accounting systems of large asset managers and service providers, managing various aspects of the system development lifecycle, and providing oversight of significant technology implementation and migration projects in middle and back office environments. Dave Valeri specializes in asset management and asset servicing operations and technology solutions. Dave brings a wealth of financial industry knowledge to his role through his experience in numerous positions at two of the world's largest financial institutions, along with several projects at GuideHouse. Rick Smith has over 30 years of experience working in the investment areas of leading insurance companies and providing consulting services to them. Rick led companies through technology initiatives and transformational change, including implementing vendor-developed software packages across a wide variety of asset classes, overseeing the development of investment data warehouses, converting portfolios acquired by insurers via mergers, and developing general ledger or other system feeds. All right, welcome everyone to the first in a series of GuideHouse Financial Services podcasts, where we will be having GuideHouse experts along with industry experts from various financial institutions and software providers. Uh, so today with us from the lovely state of Florida is Rick Smith from Clearwater Analytics. So also with us, Dave Valeri from, from GuideHouse as well. You know, we're going to have a, a series of podcasts, as I mentioned, in financial services, starting today in the world of asset management and specifically in the insurance accounting arena. So with that, let's get right to it. We'll start with you, Rick. Outsourcing has been widely adopted across various types of asset management. But in your opinion, why hasn't the asset servicing industry had as much uh, success or acceptance in the uh, in the insurance space as opposed to kind of traditional asset management? Mike, that's a good question. I think there are several reasons um, for that. Um, the first reason would be that insurance companies were early adopters and outsourced some of their other functions not related to asset servicing, and that limited success uh, in things like claims and other types of their, other parts of their operations. And they ended up taking a lot of that outsourcing back. Um, and then the second reason that, I, in my mind, is that legacy providers haven't really been able to achieve the same level of data quality that in-house teams have been able to achieve. Um, I previously was an investment controller for several different insurance companies and went through a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And if I was taking over a portfolio that had been outsourced, um, we would build in extra time in the integration timeline to do data scrubbing, validation, and, and look at things like open suspense items, um, uh, custody reconciliations, things like that, because we found that we to get it to our level, we would have to do some extra work. And I think, um, a lot of large insurers tried it um, and pulled back. Um, I do think that's changing. 
Um, the other thing that I think is that people went into it with a perception that they were going to save money, that outsourcing would be a money-saving thing. And, and while it can lower an insurance company's costs overall, um, it's not going to be a significant amount of cost savings enough to um, jump into it um, easily. And really the reasons why insurance companies should be thinking about outsourcing is to enhance their data quality, um, take advantage of kind of these next generation service models um, like we have. Um, you know, it, it does things like allows them to lower their infrastructure costs because they don't have to cobble together um, desperate systems. But more importantly, their teams are focused on the right things and they have the right tools in their hands. Um, better data repositories, flexible reporting. Um, and I think a lot of times outsourcing is um, looked at in kind of the wrong way. It really should be looked at as a partnership with the service provider. And we try to work really hard with our clients um, to make sure that it's a partnership and that we become part of their team. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Rick. Um, so we, we do a lot of work in um, strategic cost management. And um, with that, you know, I, I kind of say, uh, no one's going to sign off on just a cost project these days. They're looking for increased capabilities, uh, the ability to support growth, get into new markets, all those things, right? There's a little bit of a a, a trade-off, and obviously, if you can save money, that's that's a bonus. But we we always, or we we rather kind of uh, think that cost should never be the number one um, driver in an outsourcing proposition. So we try to shy away from that and focus on capabilities and 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 things like that. So uh, it makes makes a lot of sense. Rick, from an investment accounting perspective, uh, what do you see as the most challenging aspect of investment operations and reporting, uh, especially as it pertains to the insurance general account? Oh gosh, there are several things. Um, probably the number one thing, though, is regulation. Um, and having multi-basis accounting. Um, insurance companies have to account for their investment portfolio under U.S. GAAP, stat, tax, um, oftentimes a management basis, sometimes a key gap basis. Um, if they're international, it could be also um, dealing with IFRS or local gaps. Um, and so keeping track of all that, changing regulation, being able to work within the organization to make sure that um, they are ready to take on new regulation and um, have the systems in place to do that is a big challenge. Um, communicating the different account, the impact of the change of um, regulations. Um, take Cecil, for example, that was a, a big one for insurance companies to implement um, recently. And, and insurance companies really need to actually understand on a pro forma basis what's what the impact of that regulation is going to be on their financial statements. They need to be able to communicate it within the organization. And, and so that's probably the toughest thing that I see investment accounting departments dealing with. Um, and then I also see just 
dealing with data management and making sure that what they have in their systems is correct it is really a big part of our It's doing that yeah, validation reconciliation. Yeah. yeah, I know you mentioned um, you know statutory accounting and and we talked about the adoption or relative lack of adoption uh, compared to other types of, of asset management. Um, but it, but you know the insurers from from our experience kind of working with them view themselves as very unique. If you think about the big outsourcers, um, you know they're big custody banks and uh, for the most part, and the insurance you know uh, investment controllers and uh, like that tend to think, okay, well what is what does this big bank necessarily know uh, about statutory? Uh, statutory accounting, or how how are they going to know that as well as my team here that's been doing doing this thirty years? So that's one of the things, and uh, I think. And again, you know, there are software packages out there um, that that can handle this stuff, and it, and it can be done elsewhere. Um, let's just go a little deeper there. What what specifically uh, are the complexities involved with keeping the multiple set of books gap stat tax? At, um, I know Dave and I were talking at some of our clients. They're dealing with, you know, J Gap and and K Gap for Korea and Canadian and all of those things. So, what becomes uh, difficult and, and creates risk there? Well, assuming that you have the right tools in place, you're right. It can be um, manageable. It's it's not um, impossible to have all these different multiple bases running, but you need the right tool. You need to understand what the differences are. You need to be able to roll from, say, stat to tax or st stat to gap. You need to be able to explain those differences. And the legacy platforms, in my opinion, didn't really have reporting that did that. And they didn't really store the multi-basis values side by side so that people could report on them. So it sometimes can be really tough to get you know, gap numbers, stat numbers, tax numbers um, side by side especially if you're doing like time series analysis or looking over a long period of time, um, that can um, result in having to dump data out in the files. And I used to always say you need a PhD in pivot tables um, to do some of this stuff. Um, and, and that's not the case um, on our platform. Um, the other thing that's tough is insurance companies are, are managing or trying to optimize the results on the different scenarios. And so they, often have to make tough decisions about, you know, do I maximize my staff capital or do I try to increase my net investment income on a gap basis or do I manage my tax liability? And um, the front office is always trying to, they trade differently and they're trying to understand how to maximize all results. And as they're analyzing a trade, they need to understand you know, am I going to generate the right results for all these different multiple accounting bases? And so they need to be able to see the, see information side by side. Yeah, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking the same thing and echoing a few of your earlier statements, Rick, too, just looking at the ability to aggregate data, reconcile it, validate it, and knowing that that data and all those books should be leveraging the same same data. So you, you want to make sure if you're going to inform your decisions, whether it's capital, liquidity, talking stress testing, investment forecasting, accounting, tax, all those separate needs 
should all come from the same source, be validated, et cetera. And uh, having that multi-base accounting, um, you know, that, that it's very important to ensure that everybody's seeing the same thing and whether it's, um, you know, what was traditionally on a disparate legacy platform, um, whether it was cobbled together in the past or whether we have new solutions uh, today, it's just uh, so important that all of that is, uh, it starts with the data and knowing all these other uses and establishing that you're following regulatory requirements and seeing all the changes in today's environment, knowing we have these solutions out there. It's, I think, of utmost, utmost importance that uh, those challenges are addressed and uh, minimized by proper solutions. Uh, Agreed. What other challenges uh, are investment accounting departments facing in the insurance industry? Thinking things like regulatory change management or servi servicing more complex asset types today than uh, say 15 years ago. Yeah, we've seen a, a large increase in alternative investments. Um, and that's really the result of the low yield environment, the prolonged low yield environment, I should add. Um, and um, just um, in level three assets alone, um, they've increased by 14% since 2010. Um, and that really reflects people going into private debt. Um, LPs or scheduled VA assets have increased by 75% over the last 10 years. And that requires a specialized approach to accounting um, for those instruments. Um, it used to be that people would try to take LPs and unitize them and treat them like a bond. And um, I can tell you firsthand, um, after having to respond to some significant deficiencies, there's a lot of risk in doing it that way. Um, if you don't have your return of capitals, um, transactions processed right, um, and you're calculating a price based on your units, um, you can run into some real issues there. Um, and newer generation, um, packages, treat these instruments as a separate type of instrument. And, and so we're, we treat them as NAV-based instruments and we don't have to unitize them. Um, the other um, instrument type that we've seen a lot of um, people going into is um, private bank loan debt. It's increased by um, just under 20% um, year over year, in fact. Um, that, and that's tough. That's a tough asset class to get the data. Um, and people, you know, specialize, there are specialized vendors like Wall Street Office or whoever um, that get that data. Um, but even then, it can be tough because they aren't necessarily getting all the information that they need from the, the actual lender, the lender themselves. Um, also, um, mortgage loans have gone up in value or gone up in popularity um, significantly, 100% since 2010. Um, and so you've got a, a lot more diversity in insurance companies' portfolios as a result. And so companies really need a, a, a solution where they can look at all asset classes in one place to do things like risk reporting, performance reporting, and if you don't have full asset class coverage in your platform, then you're back to cobbling data together, reconciling, validating, um, and, and people are spending their time on non-value added tasks, um, whereas they could be using a, a solution like Clearwater where they see it all side by side it's in a warehouse with a, 
really effective and intuitive reporting engine attached to it. Uh, then probably the last challenge that I think insurance companies struggle with is expertise. Um, you know, they don't teach statutory accounting in, in most universities. Um, and understanding the differences and um, being able to be an expert and talk gap versus stack versus tax can take somebody several years to learn. Um, and so that it can be hard to find the right people, train them, retain them. Um, and um, companies, I think, struggle with that. Uh, so, Rick, you mentioned bank loans earlier, and, and those those things have been causing uh, people operational problems, you know, almost as long as I've been doing consulting to financial services and asset managers. Um, but you mentioned the kind of a proliferation of, of specialty uh, vendors that deal with kind of specialty asset classes like that. Um, how do you see uh, insurance clients and even from your time as an investment controller, uh, how do you see um, people taking that data from something like a um, like a Wall Street office or a CEO suite and putting it into um, their primary accounting platform? How does that how does that work? Um, yeah, so both as an investment controller and at Clearwater have experience with that. Um, and um, we work with several, there, there are several vendors on there actually. Um, I think Wall Street Office is probably one of the larger ones. But, um, and, and we take that data and as long as we're getting the data um, from the vendor, um, we can manage through all the issues associated with bank loans. Um, sometimes we have to reach out to agent banks to get information on behalf of our clients, and, and that can be a little bit more problematic. Um, they can be a little bit more um, uh, reluctant to um, provide that information or, or find it um, difficult. Um, so I'm not saying that it's seamless, but um, we do work um, with a variety of vendors and, and take all those challenges on, on behalf of our client. Um, and then, you know, also in the LP space, really any private asset class, um, data aggregation is a challenge. And in the LP space, um, we've been working on using uh, machine learning and um, scraping PDF files, going out to the general partner's websites, downloading. Um, and, and so we're getting a handle on automating that workflow, and that's actually worked out pretty well i i was a little skeptical at first um but we we have really high success right now we're in the like 80 percent um 80 85 percent success rate with that and um, a lot of clients are looking at that a lot of prospects um and um yeah you, you struggle with all of them um mortgage loans is a little easier because most mortgage loans now are serviced by a third party and so I think everyone out there can get files and load the files in and process payments related to mortgage loans pretty easily. Yeah. And I think there's also an appetite to look into funds and seeing if there's any more transparency. So when service providers can take information and funds are being a little more adaptable, at least certain ones, uh, to give some of their underlying uh, data using things like machine learning and um, understanding 
get more uh, more out of uh, some you know some of these investments that take months to report, quarters to report, don't have exactly a daily feed like some other providers do in terms of pricing and valuation. It's um, certainly more of an appetite to uh, customize feeds and allow for uh, certain providers to take in a lot of information. I think we're seeing whether it's uh, the term we, we hear with front to back or using a bunch of APIs in order to have many inputs match the database, have the data verified and reconciled and have many outputs. I think um, that kind of goes across the whole spectrum of investment types, including the more complex ones we're seeing today. Yeah, it's kind of interesting you mentioned front to back. In the beginning of my career, I saw a lot of vendors scrambling to try to be front to back. And over time, what I've seen is the more effective strategy that most vendors have taken is trying to be multi-asset class um, so that you have all the, your whole portfolio in one place. And, and that approach from an investor investment controller perspective has been um, really helpful. Um, and um, I think it really gears investment accounting teams up to be a more value added function um, and not just reconcilers and data managers. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, I meant to mention this earlier, but you started talking about um, using machine learning and, and, and kind of getting efficiencies in some of these process, processes. And, and earlier you were talking about pivot tables and I think giving uh, both me and Dave some some flashbacks um, from from you know reconciliations and and report challenges of, of years gone by. But um, you know whether whether or not people can get that reporting you know in a package like you described, uh, Rick. You know I do think there even if there are workarounds, people are relying more on you know automated workarounds, whether they're using Tableau or Power BI or other things to get, you know, things kind of semi, um, semi-automated, but um, yeah, that's no, a good point. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of Excel, I used to call it the XLS system, and that kind of tells you how long I've been working um, in this field, but, um, but I think people are starting to realize that, you know, you can automate a lot of the work and using, you know, um, report writers, different types of um, reporting software. It's kind of was the next wave. And now I think what you're seeing is that the, the wave now is solutions like ours, where you can actually just go right online with an iPad or cell phone or your laptop and um, use our report writer, get all the data you need, it's all right there. Um, you can see it all, um, like I said, multi-basis side by side. Um, and um, get your reporting done, you can customize your reports on the fly, you can bring data in on the fly. And so I think people are starting to realize that that's kind of the next, the next wave um, of being able to um, enable people to have the right data in front of them so that they can really make better decisions. All right, um, I'm, I'm going to move on uh, and, and I'll ask one uh, for you, but you know, we've been talking about the in investment controllership function and investment accounting. Um, 
but from your perspective and and you know i know you come from that world a little bit too how how has covid uh, kind of impacted those those teams and and what have been people what have people been doing uh, this year to kind of accommodate working in a in a new environment sure i think there were a lot of teams out there prior to covid who had work from home capabilities and you know multi location uh, responsibilities so there there were certainly a few out there that um you know were able to deal with uh, this environment a little easier than others and covid has obviously hit all of us pretty hard um but it's also led to a lot of adaptation of, of good processes systems a lot of uh software solution out there a lot of cloud-based solutions whether you're talking storage or processing i think now that everyone's been forced to get involved with all these updated solutions and adopting them it's been a, a good uh a good way to show that all of these companies insurance companies asset managers all the service providers can provide support and you know data needs to be timely accurate actionable digestible and that's not waiting for anyone so you know everyone has been able to figure out how to support that data management um, and really from an oversight and management um, responsibility we've all been able to adapt and figure out how to make the teams work around um, all these challenges that we're facing and it wouldn't have been possible years ago without some of these solutions that we just mentioned but now you know, the front office can still make their actionable investment decisions. Accounting and tax teams can still run their analyses. And from a regulatory and audit standpoint, you know, all these insurance companies and other companies in financial services can show that they're meeting regulatory requirements all while using cloud-based systems, uh, you know, automation, and um, allowing folks to, to work from wherever they need to work in order to get the job done, and I think. It's just uh, shown that a lot of, obviously in the financial services world, uh, you know, it's hard to steer Titanics and, and move uh, people off of what they're accustomed to. But in terms of processes and, and management these days, I think everybody's understanding that, you know, we're in that fourth, uh, fourth stage of the revolution there. So we, we've, we've now all, I think, adopted um, better techniques, better processes and ways of managing people and systems. So. Um, I think that's what, what COVID's done. So it's done you know, a lot of bad this year, but I think in terms of technology and, and financial services, it's shown that we can certainly evolve into something better. Yeah, Dave, uh, you went you went into the Titanic there and, and you're not gonna break into Celine Dion, are you, Dave? No, and I'm not going to be Leo uh, falling into the ocean either. All right, good. Um, I mentioned to, to Rick uh, the other day that we did a webinar fairly recently, I think back in the summer, with um, one of our clients at, at Credit Suisse and a couple um, custodians. And it, interesting, and I've had this discussion probably for, you know, getting on uh, eight or nine months now with, with COVID, but I actually heard two different arguments uh, about what this meant to the industry. And, you know, initially, um, uh, there were some challenges with like the ability of say offshore teams in India to support um, what, what was going on, right? So they, they weren't quite as resilient or prepared for work from home as say the US was. So that caused some people some uh, concern. But if you look at it, you know, even a few weeks out and a few weeks later, 
um, largely just the, the the success of uh, seamlessly moving into work from home overall, even in those kind of offshore challenges. You know, I would make the argument that um, uh, dealing with that uh, is almost, you know, a, a case in some cases for relying on um, other partners, including including software vendors. So that that was interesting. Um, Rick, I want you to add in uh, as well. I know you're you're talking with these clients every day. So what? How are they? How are they coping? Well, I think um, our clients fared pretty well. Like I mentioned earlier, we're through SaaS-based solutions, so they're they're able to to access um, access the Clearwater solution from anywhere. And so there wasn't really a, a big transition problem for us. In fact, we were able to transition all 1,200, approximately 1,200 employees to a work from home model in 72 hours. Um, we were um, able to meet all of our SLAs with our clients. I don't think really um, we missed a beat. Um, but the, the other thing that we haven't really talked about related to COVID is the, the market volatility that that our clients experienced. And as a result of that market volatility, we saw um, significant um, increases in trade volumes. Um, trades nearly doubled on our platform during the month of March. Um, we had clients running um, three times as many reports, um, both accounting related reports and market value reports. And they're trying to assess you know, what's, what's going on in their portfolio as they're going through something like this. Um, we had um, we have automated pricing um, exception reporting that goes off every day on our system, and we saw um, 95 times as many pricing exceptions kick out um, during that period of time because pricing was moving all over the place, and um, so it, it required a little bit more um, diligence on our part to um, service our service our clients. Um, but like I said, we got through it pretty well and. And um, I think the exact statistic was like 99.2% um, of our SLAs were met on time. Yeah. Um, Rick, interested in the, in the clients um, with those like thresholds being exceeded and, and all the exceptions that it generated. Um, did you see the, you know, the controller function uh, adjusting those thresholds for that period of, you know, exceptional volatility? How, how did they adjust? Um, from your, you know, from your perspective, it's really hard to tell what what they actually did. Um, I, I, but they got the same reporting. They could adjust the reporting on their own. So if they if they wanted to change those tolerances in what they were looking at, they could. Um, but we didn't change our tolerances um, in what we do to validate data. Um, they could have in their reporting and we wouldn't have Yeah, no, I just think back to um, uh, things that were set up even in the last financial crisis, you know, controls and thresholds that are normally set, you know, they're, they're not set for financial crises. So all of a sudden these conditions that would never be met are, are being met. So how do you, you know, right. yeah, how do you, how do you go kind of uh, deal with that? Um, I'll ask you another one, Rick, um, from your time, both as an investment controller and you know, even from your observation of, of Clearwater clients, 
what do you see as best practices for the investment accounting functions uh, of insurance companies? I think over time, more and more companies are going to see the value of this um, type of approach, and they won't see investment accounting as just kind of a necessary evil. They'll see it as a value-add function. Um, investment controller shops should be working with the front office. They should be understanding you know, things like multiple uh, instrument investment strategies and be reporting on them, um, alerting them to um, variances in income, alerting them to rating changes, alerting them to pricing changes. Um, and the hard thing to always prove is that working with the front office does change the way they trade. And as a result, insurance companies are making better investment decisions, and that's always hard to quantify. Um, but I've experienced it in, in, in my profession as an investment controller, and I hear it from our clients all the time. Um, and, um, you know, if you have teams that aren't focused on data and on analyzing data, but really just reconciling data, um, then you're kind of still in the investment accounting world, not the investment controllership world. Yeah, it's very similar to the trends we're seeing, I think, across asset management and asset servicing as well. I think uh, in the insurance industry, the same thing, going away from the traditional analysts to tie it back to uh, one of the topics we brought up earlier with pivot tables. It's, you know, your prior analysts would be running VLOOKUPs to reconcile pivot tables to understand what's going on by asset type, et cetera, by product. And now you want to get to that controllership. So we might call them account controllers controllers at some of the uh, asset service providers and making sure they're understanding trends and forecasting, and being able to be that value add that, that you're saying, Rick, and getting away from doing all the things that we should be able to do automatically, which the reconciling and validating and really being a value add at every step of the process. And it's, you know, with the folks making the investment decisions, it's with your regulators, it's being someone who just understands the account, whatever your account you're on, um, and being able to use that data to make good judgment calls and be uh, less, less so uh, doing the, the dirty work, if you will. Rick, you mentioned earlier um, screen scraping, and I think I was kind of smiling or smirking here, uh, but that in the pivot tables, I was just thinking of, of key people from you know, uh, accounting functions of, of years gone by, and Dave and I, I think, were thinking of the same uh, key people that were the, the one or two people in a massive organization that could pull off creating some semblance of semi-automation through screen scraping. Um, you know, and I think everyone's a little more uh, mature now. But, but to your point on this, this question, uh, I think is a really important one on um, instead of doing kind of the, the dirty work like Dave mentioned, or, or having people spend an inordinate amount of time either prepping data or reconciling, right? It's it's not just about costs as we've been been talking about. So, like if you can save uh, if you can save time on those super manual things, um, you know, it's not just about okay. Well, now we save the time and we can reduce our staff by nine people. It's really instead of spending that time, you know, now you're having people do real analysis and focus on you know the, the things that are important not just prepping data and, and, and reconciling. And um, 
that's actually really important for the um, for the accounting staff too, because that that uh, satisfaction of doing kind of what people perceive as value add work leads to more retention and job satisfaction and all those things. So if they have if they have to spend less time dealing with all of that, you know, uh, dirty work and and, and drudgery, um, that's a good thing for everybody. No, that's right. That's right. Um, I can't agree more. And and really, um, I've had pretty good success with doing this at one company. And um, now I look at where those accountants were that um, got us through the transition from being an investment accounting to an investment controllership shop. They're all in really good positions um, because what happened is they started partnering with the business. They were able to demonstrate that they understood complex um, financial instruments as well as complex accounting. Um, and that they understood what's really driving the business and what matters. And those people have all gone on to have very successful careers. Um, and um, I always took it as kind of a, a, a win when I would start to see people starting to steal people from my team, because that meant that we were doing a good job and that we were getting, getting where I wanted us to go. And um, and, and not, and we weren't ever really relying on one person. Um, I think sometimes it's easy also, I just want to mention, I think sometimes it's easy for people to underestimate how many times people are reconciling the same data. And if you don't have an accounting centric data model, it's happening over and over again. Um, and what I mean by an accounting centric data model is a data model where the records that are making up your um, ledger entries and your financial statements are what's being used for prior period or historical reporting. And if everybody has access to a reconciled data set, then you don't have, then you don't have, you know, highly um, skilled and highly compensated actuaries reconciling accounting data. You don't have risk managers reconciling accounting data. Um, you don't have what I used to call um, emergency reconciliation parties where the chief investment officer has one set of numbers and the CFO has another set and um, there's a meeting and all of a sudden everybody's scrambling to reconcile these numbers because everybody's working off the same thing. Um, and not only that, but it's important um, for performance. You should be able to drill down on your performance numbers and see what's causing um, differences and variances and be able to do that type of work, you should know that you're paying people based on their performance, which is based on your financial records. Um, and I think that CFOs and controllers um, should think a little bit about harder about that than sometimes they do. Absolutely. And I think I'll uh, pivot to a, a value add uh question over here since it's going to be forecasting, uh, but what do you think the future investment accounting for insurance company general account assets will look like? Yeah, I think people will go more to an investment controllership model. I think people are starting to realize that um, using other, using a, a multi-tenant, um, multi single instance platform like a Clearwater where data is reconciled and validated once. And if we fix something for one client, every client that holds that instrument benefits from that. If we have to put in a fee to a custodian bank, um, 
we can share that with our entire client base. And so I think people are starting to recognize the power of a, a SaaS provider with that type of uh, model and um, automated validations and reconciliation checks and, and things like that. And so I think people are starting to see that. I think people are also starting to catch on to the accounting centric data model um, concept because I think people do uh, do realize that their people are spending a lot of time just reconciling data across different reports, across different um, um, uh, different software packages like a risk package or something like that. Um, and then I think people are starting to see that you know, while we've made progress with some of the um, business intelligence tools, they can be difficult to maintain and you can have like data that's being cubed, but you still have to manage how the data is being cubed um, and um, how people are accessing it. And, and so I think people are really starting to wake up um, to um, a really integrated full data warehouse that they don't have to maintain. Um, and so I, I think that's where we're going. I think people realize they need to put um, the right tools um, into their operations so their teams can do value added work. Um, and I so I think the trend is really happening and it, um, we see it at Clearwater and we're benefiting from it. Um, and I think it's only gonna continue. Yeah, it brings up an interesting uh, challenge that I've seen in a number of different environments, but obviously um, clients would expect to kind of gain the benefit of potentially the experience in your case of all the Clearwater clients. Um, and in the case of outsourcers, you know, all, all of that outsourcers clients, um, you know, they always want to know what the other shops are doing and how they're dealing with, with certain things. Right. And so they do gain a lot of perspective from what you can tell them about, you know, what, what 10 other insurers are doing. Uh, but it becomes, it, it can become tricky because you can, observe those things, right? You're, you're not really in the position where you want to be opining on how to, uh, to do something because that's not necessarily what they're, what they're paying you for is the, the advisory piece. That, that's right. I mean, we're, we partner with investment accounting, investment operations and, and front office team, but we are not making you know, accounting elections for our clients. They still have to understand guidance and make their own decisions around that. We can't tell them, um, you know, what they should impair and not impair, um, things like that. We don't sell trades on our clients' behalf either because um, there's no benefit for us doing that. There's no network effect benefit um, to have an outsourcer settling your trades because um, that has to be done one at a time. But there is a big benefit in, in areas that you wouldn't even think of, like payment processing. We can look across our platform and we can see that Custodian X um, remitted a payment that doesn't match what we were expecting. And we can look at it across all the other custodians that are remitting payments on that same instrument. And we can say, yes, this is Custodian X's issue and contact them immediately. And, and we can say that all the other custodians are handling this correctly and this is why this is the underlying data issue that caused a problem in your calculation um, we can also help our clients 
by talking about what we see on the platform. We never talk, of course, about any specific examples, but we can talk about what we're seeing across the platform. Um, and so, for example, if we're seeing a lot of increased impairments like we were seeing in March, we can say, yeah, everybody's you know, going through the same pain you are, um, and, and we can really kind of partner with them. But again, it's always what we see across the platform. We never do talk about individual clients with individual clients. And I think when you see accounting-centric, uh, you know, you plat if a platform's based on, on accounting principles like that, it's also easy to look at your downstream, what are typically known as downstream risk reports, investment compliance, performance. And it can also check not only on the other inputs like custodian or asset management files, et cetera, but also on the other vendors. You know, you can sometimes see, you know, we've got the, the, this pricing and everybody's using this pricing on our platform. And whether it's this solution or another solution, you can check and see, oh, well, why is, why is this person valuing this so much, which is going to increase, you know, on their performance report, uh, probably showcase different on their risk reporting, et cetera. And, can run a check across the whole spectrum. I think one of the biggest things we're seeing with everyone going to cloud-based and everybody trying to get to a point where they can take data from anywhere, validate it automatically, and just be able to use it as actionable reporting on the other end is that you're checking on the entire market and the entire, in every industry. So it's it's one of those, uh, the world's gotten a lot smaller, which I think ties back to one of our themes here with uh, what COVID's shown us is that doesn't matter where you are, who you work for, you know, the data is the data. And if there's something uh, awry, it, it will be caught. And, you know, using solutions that are able to validate and reconcile this data automatically are, are helping everybody in the industry, insurance and otherwise. Totally agree. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks, Rick. And, and uh, before we wrap, I uh, just want to observe uh, that once again, my my good friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Valeri, has has managed to get the last word in. Uh, so that, um, and he, he also got to use use the hands and do his whole his whole thing. So I appreciate that. Um, but no, thanks thanks Rick for being our um, our, our guest in the inaugural FS um, podcast series. So much appreciated. Um, and in I'll just look back you know you mentioned uh investment accounting and investment controllership is not you know taught in school uh personally i can remember you know <laughs> i did not learn it in school but i can remember exactly where i learned it you know for 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 two years in a in a cubicle on the 10th floor of a rather uh you know a boring looking building in a unnamed <laughs> but um yeah, I think we can all share those the same stories. But th thanks again, Rick. Really, really good stuff. That concludes today's episode. Be sure to check in for future installments on the GuideHouse on Financial Services podcast series. GuideHouse on Financial Services is a podcast series produced by GuideHouse's Financial Services segment. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share it with friends and colleagues on social media. To learn more about our capabilities and or read our latest insights, please visit guidehouse.com slash financial services or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.